I met before. My name is Matt Luloy. I have the privilege of serving as the, the pastor here. Uh, if we've not met, I would love the opportunity to do that even today. Uh, so come find me after the service. It would be a real joy to, to meet you and, uh, and shake your hand. One more thing I just wanted to mention before we move into our teaching time. Uh, at Liberty Church, we really want to be a people that cultivates a, a culture, a community of service. Uh, a kind of community where we holistically care for one another, not just in the spiritual things, but in the material as well. Uh, and in the weeks ahead, there's going to be a handful of opportunities to do that. Uh, we have a wave of new babies coming. Um, the, the Austin and Amy Gee welcomed their son Noah a couple weeks ago. There's two more babies coming in September and one more in October, if everything goes according to schedule. Uh, so many babies coming soon. Uh, we also have a handful of families that are moving uh, and so we um, want to, in the past, we've, we've tried to figure out what's the best way to communicate this and let people know. Uh, and largely that's happened through home meetings, through kind of smaller pockets of people. Um, those will always continue to play an important role in how we serve and care for one another. Uh, but we also want to find ways to highlight those more broadly, just to instill this, this vision, this, this value that we have of being a culture of service. And so one way you can practically participate in that this coming week uh, is that David and Jen White need some help moving this week. Uh, it's in your bulletin, some of the details about that. Um, the details for their move came together rather quickly, and the timeline coincided uh, with Nate and Zach going to college this week. Um, so there's a lot of work to get done in a relatively short period of time. Um, so it'd be, it would bless them greatly uh, to have some help packing tomorrow, uh, which is Monday, and then again on Friday. And then this coming Saturday, uh, help loading things out, uh, moving and cleaning their place. Um, so if you're able to do that, there's a sign-up sheet on the welcome table, uh, or you can see Allison Mullins. Uh, you can let us know one of those couple ways that you're able to help, and then we'll get you the rest of the details um, that way. Uh, and then stay tuned for, for more uh, opportunities as well as, as babies are born and just really life uh, happens uh, as we continue on as a church together. Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 961 uh, is where we are starting, kind of the bottom of page 961. We'll flip over into 962. In, uh, in 1997, an author and an NYU professor named Neil Postman wrote an article for a magazine called First Things. And, he, and the article was called Science and the Story We Need. And in it, Neil Postman says this, in the end... Science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin, science answers probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end, science answers probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Now, Neil Postman was a humanist. Uh, so he was by no means writing or advocating for a Christian view of the world. And yet, as he studied for years our culture, he put his finger on something I think that's really important. And that is that the vast majority of human beings long for something more than a merely naturalistic explanation for why things are the way they are. And I can't think of a better invitation than that for Christians to speak up and to be faithfully present uh, in this world. What that means is that we have as Christians both a push and a pull motive for being present and faithful in, in our world. So we, of course, have the call of Jesus to love others, to serve others, to go and make disciples of all nations. We might call that a push motive. We're propelled, we're compelled outward in response to what Jesus has done for us. We go and we live and we speak and we serve among the people that God has placed us. 
But on top of that, if Neil Postman is right, and I think he is, there's also a massive pull motive here. That there's a world begging for something, whether they articulate that or not, whether they know it or not, there's a world begging for something more than the emptiness of an accidental life. So we are concluding this morning our series that we've been in all summer in the Apostles' Creed. And in this series, we've sought to not just understand in kind of a cerebral way, but really to believe at a heart level these core truths of the Christian faith. And so as we've done that, if you've been with us this summer, I hope that each of you have in some way or maybe multiple ways tasted more deeply of the richness of the Christian story. Right, that God has revealed answers to these questions we all face of how it all began and the meaning of life. And those answers are far more satisfactory than, than anything else that we find. Far more worthy in living in light of. And God has also revealed a far better answer to this question of how will it all end. And it's to that question that we're going to turn our attention today. So listen now with open ears to the book that we love as I read from 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start in verse 35 and then read through the end of the chapter. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ in, differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us.
Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts. Help us to truly understand. And understanding that we might believe and believing that we might follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor, seeking your glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So we've come to the conclusion of the Apostles' Creed. These last couple lines, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Most religions, most worldviews, believe in some form of life after death. That is not something that's unique or distinct about Christianity. But the resurrection of the dead to eternal life with a physical body, that is something that makes Christianity distinct. Now what difference does that make, and why is that included among these foundational core truths of the Christian faith? 1 Corinthians 15 is really the most comprehensive passage we have in Scripture about the resurrection body. And the verses that we're looking at today, uh, they contain three pairs that help us understand and then live in light of this future resurrection body. Three pairs of things. So there's a pair of analogies, there's a pair of men, and there's a pair of lenses. And we're going to look at each pair for the rest of our time this morning. So first, let's talk about the pair of analogies. Starting in September, and I mentioned this uh, just in passing last week, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians together. It's going to be our fall series leading us into the Advent season. And as we get into that book, there's a pattern that you will notice quickly. And it's that Paul is responding to a series of questions raised by either the behaviors or the explicit questions of the men and women in Corinth. And so this section, like many others in this book, begins with a question. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? What's not immediately obvious for you and I is that underneath that question is some really important subtext. Uh, Greek philosophy, Greek thought, which was pervasive in the Mediterranean world, was dualistic. And we've talked about this a little bit when we started our series in the Creed. But there was a great appreciation for the spiritual aspects of life. And at the same time, there was great disdain for the material and the physical aspects of life. The body, according to the prevailing thought of the day, the body was a prison to be escaped. And eternal life or salvation meant a fully spiritual existence without the prison that the body is or was. So the way that men and women tended to treat their bodies went one of two directions. Asceticism or hedonism. Asceticism says because the body is unimportant, treat it badly, deny it the care, deny it the comfort that it really needs. Hedonism says because the body is unimportant, fully indulge whatever craving you might have. Right? Be a glutton, uh, be a drunkard, be sexually promiscuous. The body is dirty, the body doesn't matter, so just do whatever you feel to do. The real difficulty then that most of the men and women in Corinth had with the resurrection wasn't the supernatural and spiritual aspect of it. For many of us in our culture, and perhaps even for some of us in this room, that's what's really hard to believe about the resurrection in our day and age, the supernatural spiritual part, that there is a resurrection of the dead. But that wasn't the Corinthians' issue. For them, it was the idea that life after death, that everlasting life, included a physical, material body. It was the fact that the, the scope of God's redemption wasn't just the spiritual parts of life. The scope of God's redemption included the physical and the material as well. And so Paul here offers these two analogies to explain the resurrection body. The first one is a seed. So our earthly body is like a seed... And when it dies, it gives birth to a plant, something a little bit different. 
And what we learn from this analogy is that there's continuity between our earthly bodies and our resurrection body. I know a lot of you uh, in the room are gardeners. I am not a gardener. But I do know enough to say with confidence that when you dig a hole, you don't put like a fully grown tomato in the ground. Maybe you, maybe you do. I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't even speak that confidently about that. You don't put a fully grown tomato in the ground. You put a seed in the ground. And when you harvest that a time later, you don't harvest the seed just grown bigger. You harvest a tomato. Likewise, uh, so, so those two things are inseparable. They're connected. There's continuity, but there's a substantial transformation that's happened there. And likewise, with our resurrection body, though we don't know exactly all that this entails, there's continuity in some form between our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. The second analogy that Paul offers there is an analogy of species. Different species have different kinds of bodies. And so he says, so also, our heavenly bodies are different from our earthly bodies. Different bodies serve different purposes. And even among the same species, there are different types. He even alludes to stars there. Different stars have different glories. Well, among humans, different bodies serve different purposes. A couple weeks ago, when the Olympics began, there were a series of articles that were published about the ideal body types for different Olympic sports. And it, it kind of proves the point. Like, Michael Phelps is an amazing swimmer. He'd be a terrible gymnast. And Simone Biles is an amazing gymnast. She probably wouldn't be very effective on the basketball court or on the volleyball court. So the body we have now, Paul says here, is fitting for earthly life. But the body we have in the resurrection, the perfected body, will be fitting for eternal life, for life everlasting. Now the main thing that Paul wants us to see from these analogies is that not only does Jesus' work bring about radical spiritual transformation, but that it also brings about radical physical transformation. Most of the time when we think about the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, we think about it exclusively in spiritual terms. We were once dead because of our sin. We are raised to new life in a spiritual kind of way. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely central to the gospel. Paul is saying here, it's not just radical spiritual transformation. In the end, one day, there's also radical physical transformation. And what is now perishable will be raised imperishable. And what is sown in dishonor And the word that he uses there means humiliation, right? That our lives are characterized by humiliation. The body breaks down and decays. It doesn't work like it's supposed to. That will be raised in glory. And what is sown in weakness will be raised in power. So a couple implications for us in light of this. One is that we should value our physical bodies the way that God values our physical bodies. Another way to think about it is this. God doesn't scrap the good that he creates. He doesn't scrap what he makes. He redeems what he makes. And that's true on the grandest scale. That's true for the cosmos. Jesus is, as we've sung and celebrated already this morning, Jesus is making all things new. But that's even more specifically true of you, each and every one of us, and of our physical bodies. So don't fall into a dualistic error of only valuing the spiritual aspects of your life. God values your physical being so much that he's not just going to allow you to rot in the ground in perpetuity. He's going to raise you to a new physical existence. So wherever you might treat your body badly, because it seems unimportant to you, value your body the way that God values your body. Practically speaking, go to the doctor. There's like some elbows being thrown from probably from wives to husbands mostly in that direction. 
go to the dentist. Uh, a relative of mine once stopped getting dental care because he thought the money could be better used elsewhere. And that sounds noble, but then his teeth became terrible, and then in turn he stopped eating well, and then his body started breaking down, and his body became weak. That's not valuing your body the way that God values your body. Moreover, wherever you might be prone to just indulge cravings in your life and chase after those cravings, see your body as more valuable than that. See your body the way God sees it. Your body is not a commodity to be spent chasing fleeting moments of happiness. What you eat and how much you eat, that matters. What you drink and how much you drink, that matters. The way you dress, the kinds of physical contact you pursue with other human beings, our sex lives, that matters to God. So see your body as important. Give thought and attention to the physical and material aspects of your life because God gives thought to the material and physical aspects of your life. Your body matters to God. Another implication for this, we should empathize with and we should care for those who experience the frailty of earthly bodies. Empathize with and care for those who experience the frailty of their earthly bodies. The contrast here that Paul paints between an earthly body and a heavenly body is drastic. Radical transformation is going to be required to have a heavenly body someday. And you know who knows that better than anybody else? The men and women among us who have lost or have never had full use of their bodies in this life. People with chronic illness, chronic pain, those born with disabilities, whatever those might be, uh, amputees, those who have been severely injured in some way. And then every single one of us who lives long enough to watch our physical capacities decline. What is the heart of God toward those, toward we who are keenly aware of our frailty? Well, in light of the resurrection of the body, I think that Jesus would compassionately look at these men and women in the eye and say, dear child, just hold on. Just hold on. Today, you suffer a little bit more of the decay and the decline of this earthly body. But that does not define how much I value you. That is not the final word of my love and my care and my value that I've put on you. And one day, I will transform this lowly body of yours to be like my own glorious body. So let us be people who empathize with and care for those who are suffering under the perishability, the humiliation, the weakness of their earthly bodies. Right? Because God values the body, because he will, from these frail and perishable frames, raise an imperishable, glorious, heavenly body. We should be people who labor to love and care for those with chronic illness and disabilities. We should be a community of people that cares for one another as we age and as we lose our faculties. May we offer a distinct kind of love and care and dignity for each other because God will bring and we will look together at this beautiful transformation and the resurrection of the body. The second pair Paul employs here in these verses is a comparison and a contrast of two men. The first man is Adam. Adam is the, the head of humanity. Uh, who along with Eve were the original image bearers of God. And as his descendants, you and I and every human being that has ever lived, our lives are inextricably linked with his. You and I too bear the image of God. 
But we also inherit the guilt and the pollution of Adam's sin, the fall into sin. We all, like Adam, have gone astray. We all, like him, need the salvation and the redemption of God. How is that going to come? It's going to come through a second and better Adam, Jesus Christ. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, just before what we read here in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And he picks that thought up here in verses 45 through 49, comparing and contrasting the first Adam with the second Adam. The first Adam was physically alive, but in his sin experienced spiritual death. The second, Jesus, experienced physical death that all who believe in him, that all who trust in him, might have spiritual life. But that's not the end of it for Jesus. It doesn't culminate with physical death. He is raised to new life. And in his resurrection, he becomes then the first fruits for us. He becomes the forerunner and the model of our own physical bodily resurrection. So as we read 1 Corinthians 15, let's not miss the most important thing here. The reason that we can say with confidence, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, is because Jesus himself has risen and lives forever. And as the second and better Adam, as we put our faith in him, we are united with him, and our lives are united with his life. Like Paul says, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. People write books and and speculate and become consumed by what heaven and eternal life are going to be like. Scripture talks comparatively little about that. What it does speak a lot more about and what it speaks a lot more clearly about, it makes the point that that the, the point of the resurrection of the body and the everlasting life is that we get to be with Jesus where he himself has already gone. The whole point of the resurrection, according to Scripture, is not exactly like what kind of life will we live with him for eternity one day. It's that we get to live with him at all. That we get to go where he himself has gone. He's the forerunner. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And that's Christianity's better answer to this question. How does it all end? Our answer is that it doesn't. It doesn't end. Our everlasting God and King, Jesus Christ, raises us to life everlasting with him. But there is a massive tension introduced in verses 48 and 49. And I don't know if you heard that as, you, as we read through it earlier. But it's this. While we await the transformation of the perishable to the imperishable, we simultaneously are people of dust and people of heaven. We simultaneously bear the image of Adam and the image of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And what that often feels like in real life is that we are being torn apart at the seams. What that often feels like in real life is that we have a split personality. United with Christ as new creations, we begin to experience the quality of resurrection life now. We're people of heaven. But we still are perishable people of dust. We are plagued by sin. We are plagued by our weakness. I would invite you and encourage you to read Romans chapter 7, the the last several verses of Romans chapter 7. Listen to the Apostle Paul battle this out in his own life. And then I would invite you to engage that same battle in your own life. Engage that same tension in your own life. And I came across a poem this week that was too good not to share. Uh, I love how this poet Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, speaks about this in his poem, Nature's Bonfire. And we have it on a slide. Uh, Derek, could you put that up there for me? 
This is called Nature's Bonfire by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And reflecting on the resurrection, he writes this. In a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. And this jack, joke, poor potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond, is immortal diamond. And here's what he's saying when he says that. In our present experience, the immortal diamond of God's glory in us is mixed up with all of the rest of the garbage and the dust of our human nature. But one day, in this mere moment, all of that other stuff will be gone, and all that will be left is the immortal diamond. Unadulterated, unmarred by sin. Unmarred by brokenness. And today is not that day. So what should we focus on in the meantime? While we live in this tension of being people of dust and and people of heaven, this creates conflict among Christians. Uh, This creates conflict uh, among Christians in in our own church, people that we do life with. And actually, that conflict, I think, can be a really good and healthy thing if we handle it well, because it keeps us sitting right in the middle of the tension where we're supposed to be. But as we seek to navigate that tension, let me just offer you a couple rails on which to run. First one is this. See the diamond. See the diamond. See the glory of God in yourself. And that'll be really hard for those of you in this room, those of us in this room, who are prone to self-abasement. Rejoice where you see the evidence of God's glory in the image of Jesus in you. Because we truly get to begin experiencing aspects of that now. So so if you're acutely aware of how messed up your life is, if you're prone to, to wallow in despair because you're so confronted with that, I just would say to you, lift your head, you glorious creation of Jesus Christ. Lift your head, you imperishable diamond radiating the glory of God. The real glory of God is in you and at work in you. And what Jesus has made and what Jesus is making glorious, we need not downplay or obscure with a self-obsessed, navel-gazing kind of despair. So lift your head, see that in you. See the glory of God in you. At the very same time, see what Hopkins calls the poor potsherd. What are those areas in your life where you're still undeniably a broken, sinful, fallible mess? The typical Christian approach, I think, to these areas is to force them underground, to to sweep them under the rug, to pretend like they don't exist. But when you force this very real part of you underground, that's when you give it power. That's when it actually consumes more of you. And in a counterintuitive way, that's what actually obscures the diamond in you more when you try to hide this other stuff. So don't force your sin underground. Acknowledge those dark corners of your soul. Drag them out into the light. And if I can encourage all of us with this, whatever you do, and wherever you kind of naturally are inclined here, stop downplaying both of these things and landing in some milquetoast middle that means nothing. It is so much better to say and believe that you are, at the very same moment, immortal diamond radiating the glory of God and poor potsherd broken mess. It is better to see both of those extreme things and to hold them together rather than to do what we most often do, what I most often do, and kind of balance them out and cancel them out and end in some kind of middle. Right? That is utterly lifeless. 
and it's completely non-compelling to a watching world, right? Where we say, I'm neither great, nor am I a wreck, I'm okay. And what I would say to us is, no, let's not do that. We are simultaneously beautiful and glorious creations of God, and we are a wreck. Why? Because we bear the image of the man of dust, and we bear the image of the man of heaven. And someday that dust will be no more. One day we will see Jesus, and I cannot wait for this moment. We will look our brokenness, and we will look our besetting sin in the eye, and we will say, I am done with you. I'm done with you forever. In the meantime, and until that day comes, see the diamond and see the potsherd together. See that they reside together in each of us. And praise God for the diamond. Rejoice in that. Ask him to strip away everything that is not that. But let's, even on a practical level here, let's, let's pursue the kinds of relationships with one another where we can acknowledge this in an honest way together. If you already have relationships like that, ask someone that you know well and who knows you well, where do you see the glory of God in me? Where do you see the diamond in me? The same moment, where do you see the potsherd? And if you don't have a relationship like that, if this feels like the most awkward thing in the world to raise that as a question to someone else and ask them to speak to that, let, just, let this be your invitation. We need friends like that. We need relationships like that. Be that kind of friend for someone else and have those kinds of friends in your life. Third and final pair, just briefly, so we'll talk about from these verses, is a pair of lenses. The end of 1 Corinthians 15, I'm sure many of you have heard it before, it's this great crescendo in Scripture. And it contains two lenses in it that allow us to cultivate what I'm going to call the bifocal view of the victory of Christ. Bifocal view of the victory of Christ. One lens here looks to the future. The other lens looks to the past and to the present. So verses 54 and 55, that's the future-looking lens. And what it does is it corrects nearsightedness by pointing to what is to come. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Immediately after that, verses 56 and 57, that's the present and past-looking lens. And what that lens does is it corrects farsightedness by making sense of the here and now. What does this actually look like for us today? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we we have something that the world desperately not only needs, but in, in many ways wants. And so when we speak about death and eternal life, most of culture is familiar with, is at least familiar with the idea that Christianity is about life and, and death and life everlasting. Right? Most people are familiar with it on that level. When we speak about death and eternal life, let's make sure that we offer a bifocal view. The future-looking lens is a taunt of death. Right? Because Jesus is risen, we know the end of the story. And that means, and think about how amazing this is, we can look our last great enemy, death, in the eye and we can taunt him. We can taunt him as a defeated foe. Death, you will not last. You yourself will die. You will be swallowed up in victory. So the difference that that future-looking lens makes is that you and I need not be paralyzed by the fear of death. So many people in our world, and I know you know people like this, they're in your family, they're, they're your neighbors, they're your coworkers. People fear death. And it's totally understandable. Because death is traumatic. And it's unnatural. It's an intruder. 
But this future-looking lens reminds us death itself will die. And so in those moments where we are prone to be overwhelmed, paralyzed, crippled by fear, we can look to this future secured by Christ and we can taunt our great enemy. But there are other moments where taunting death makes no sense at all. And it is the last thing on your mind to do in that moment. Where it's not fear that overwhelms us, but it's sorrow and grief that overwhelms us. And this present and past-looking lens acknowledges that there is a real sting in death. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, death will be swallowed up in victory. But that hasn't happened yet. And so it's odd for us to taunt death in moments where we're overwhelmed by the sting and the sorrow of death. The difference this other lens makes is that you and I are free to feel that sting and to grieve in light of it. Right? We grieve with hope. Paul even says here, Jesus has secured victory, but sin and its effects are not eradicated yet. There's still very much a power and a sting to death. So this bifocal view of the victory of Christ enables two things. It enables both freedom from fear and freedom to grief. Neil Postman said that the accidental life is unsatisfying to the vast majority of our culture. You know what else is unsatisfying to our culture? A fake and phony life. People sniff that out in a moment. And so when you are overwhelmed by sadness and grief, when you lose a loved one, when you watch the news and it just hits you as this giant wave of sorrow that someone has died, you don't need to feel the pressure to quote verses 54 and 55 and taunt death in that moment. You can be real, you can feel the sting, you can be sad. It's good to be those things. At the same time, it's an obvious inconsistency when we claim to believe in everlasting life but live our lives paralyzed by the fear of death. And I heard a pastor once give a great illustration of this using a balance beam, which is a fitting illustration given that we're concluding the Olympics here. But what if a gymnast got up on top of the balance beam and rather than performing a routine of jumps and and flips and twists, what if for fear of falling off, that gymnast just laid down on the bar and bear-hugged it with their arms and legs until it was over. Right? They wouldn't fall. They wouldn't lose points. They wouldn't have a, a deduction of points for falling. But they would also miss the point entirely of what they're doing in that moment. And similarly, if we are consumed by a fear of death, we will not actually live our lives. And what we call life will just be a series of calculated efforts to make money and be comfortable and avoid as much trouble as we can and postpone death for as many days or as many hours as possible. So may we actually live our lives. Right? May we actually take risks for the glory of God and the good of others. Meet and befriend people who are nothing like you. Talk about substantial things that are happening in your life rather than just what's easy and comfortable to talk about. Put more money and more time into efforts that genuinely love and serve other people. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive, and as Paul concludes, our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Because Jesus will radically transform these perishable bodies into an imperishable heavenly body. Because death itself will be swallowed up in victory. May we trust in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Because living in light of that, is that that's, that's a life that's actually worth living. Living in light of that is the life that's actually worth living. In the name of the Father, 
and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, as we have been in this series and, and looking at the creed, we are grateful for the work that you have done and will do. We are grateful that we have meaning and purpose, that our lives are not accidental. We are grateful that you care about us as physical and material beings, not just spiritual ones, and that you redeem all of it. And so would you meet us where we are, frail and weak? Would we see your glory in us? Would we see the diamond that you have put there? Would we acknowledge the potsherd? Would we acknowledge the brokenness that still exists and long for, us, long for the day when we are fully and finally rid of it? Help us to live our lives navigating this tension of being image bearers of Adam and image bearers of Jesus. Help us to be a community that loves and cares for one another well through that process, that values one another in the spiritual realm and in the physical and material realm. And as we come to this table and we see the, the holistic kind of love that you have shown us, the, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our souls, may we celebrate again at the work that you have done. Let me pray this all in your name. Amen.